We don't even know who's ordering the pills. It may not even be a woman. It may be a sex trafficker, incestuous abuser, coercive boyfriend. But all of those things are happening because of the FDA's extremely lax regulation of these drugs. Several months ago, for our fifth and sixth episodes, I interviewed attorney Eric Baptist, who offered an overview of what was going on in the federal court case, the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus the FDA, in which we are a plaintiff. Since then, there have been a few developments in this case, about which we felt you should be kept in the loop, so I'm honored to say we brought Eric back to give us an update. For those who missed those episodes, Eric is the lead attorney representing the plaintiffs in AHM versus FDA. He serves as senior counsel for the Alliance Defending Freedom, focusing on administrative litigation and regulatory advocacy. Before working at ADF, Eric was a partner at one of the largest law firms in Washington, D.C., and a senior executive service political appointee at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Eric is admitted to practice before the U.S. Supreme Court and several federal courts of appeal, and so he definitely brings a great depth of experience and knowledge to this case. I'm also excited to have Dr. Ingrid Skopp here to offer a medical perspective on the importance of this case. Dr. Skopp is Vice President and Director of Medical Affairs for the Charlotte Lozier Institute, leveraging more than 25 years experience as a practicing obstetrician gynecologist to support research and policies that respect the dignity of every human life. Dr. Skopp is a fellow of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, where she uses science and statistics to counter pro-abortion agendas and is a lifetime member of APLOG. Dr. Skopp's research on maternal mortality, abortion, and women's health has been published in multiple peer-reviewed journals. Dr. Skopp will also be speaking at our 2024 National Conference in February on the harms of chemical abortion to women, so be sure to register for that. Eric and Dr. Skopp, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. So, Eric, I'm going to start with you. When you joined us on this podcast previously, you gave a thorough and excellent primer on Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus FDA. But for our listeners who maybe aren't caught up on those episodes just yet, can you offer a quick summary of what this case is about and why are we suing the FDA? Well, ADF represents eight different plaintiffs in this lawsuit, four national pro-life medical organizations, and the other four individual doctors. Um, collectively, both have been challenging uh, the FDA's approval since 2000 of the chemical abortion drug Mifepristone, or RU486. And then those doctors, whether the members of these medical associations or the individual doctors named in our, our case, they have had to treat and care for countless women across this country in America's emergency rooms and elsewhere for complications associated with chemical abortion drugs. And therefore, we're bringing this case on behalf of our doctors, but also on behalf of women and girls who have been harmed by this drug over time. And as I kind of set forth in the last podcast, what FDA has done over time is not just wrong, just because of what we believe in terms of a pro-life movement, but really because what FDA was entrusted to do by Congress, when to serve as the nation's drug gatekeeper, was to protect the American public, and in particular, American women and girls, from dangerous drugs. And it failed to do so because it failed to live up to the instructions that Congress gave FDA to do when it comes to reviewing and approving or disapproving new drugs. And that's why we're suing, because they failed to follow the law from day one, and they continue to do so today. Absolutely. So 
Um, you know, again, if people want to know more of the details, I'd encourage you to to go back uh, to those original podcasts and listen, because we definitely go in depth there. But um, can you touch again, Eric, on, so we're suing over the original approval because they didn't follow their, their own rules and regulations that they've been tasked by Congress to do to ensure that drugs are safe before they're approved. But um, can you give us a, a little synopsis to just of what they've done since then that really is just so egregious as far as um, lifting the, the safeguards over this drug? Sure. In 2000, when they approved this drug, they, at least FDA recognized it was an inherently dangerous drug and drug regimen, and so they had to set up some safeguards around the regimen to ensure that they were minimizing the complications that would inevitably arise from taking this drug. They had three doctor visits where you would have uh, one to screen for life-threatening conditions such as an ectopic pregnancy or someone's gestational age beyond the permissible amount. You had a second doctor's visit to make sure the woman uh, received the drug at the appropriate time and took it in the appropriate manner. And a third one on day 14 to ensure she had no life-threatening complications. And I, I mentioned the word doctor because later in 2016, FDA removed the doctor from the equation. Now any state-allowed prescriber can now give these drugs out. Uh, that's important for two reasons. One, now, now a doctor is no longer involved, but that also means when she has that inevitable complication, or many of them do, uh, a doctor can't, uh, the prescribing person cannot actually do anything about it. And so again, why are we here is because our doctors, your doctors, your members, have had to treat countless women in the emer America's emergency rooms because that's where they have to go when they require follow-up surgery or need uh, anti, uh, you know, I guess, to treat with uh, bacterial infections or anything else. And mm -hmm. so that's why, uh, that's the some of the biggest stuff happened in 2016. But then moving to 2021, I think even the most egregious one of all is the allowed mail-order chemical abortions, where now, again, there's no in-person interaction with a medical professional or a prescriber. Uh, a woman may obtain these drugs by the mail, take them at home, without any medical supervision instruction, and we've seen the dangerous results because of that. Absolutely. Well, and I know that I, in in the emergency room that I work in, uh, as, a, as an OB hospitalist, when I get called to the emergency room, I have seen an increase in the number of women coming in with complications related to these drugs, as has our other guest, Dr. Scott. So, uh, Ingrid, you you work now as an OB hospitalist, as I do, and so I think this is a good time to bring in your expertise. Um, can you give us, for a little bit of context, uh, what do chemical abortion drugs do, and what are some of their risks that we know from the literature, but also that you've seen yourself? Yeah, thank, thank you, Christina. Um, Mifepristone blocks progesterone receptors. It cuts off the hormonal support and kills the embryo or the fetus. It's generally followed in about 24 hours by mesoprostol that induces contractions to expel the pregnancy tissue. It's being promoted to women. The abortion industry tells them it's safer than Tylenol or penicillin, and we'll address that lie in just a minute. But um, the reasons it's being promoted to women benefit the abortion industry. Um, it's lucrative. They don't have to hire a surgeon or pay costs associated with surgery. And we see that increasingly they're using it to circumvent state restrictions in the 25 states that are trying to protect unborn human life. There's a lot of complications associated with this. Number one is it's a terrible experience for women, by the way. The average woman bleeds for two weeks. 8% um, bleed longer than a month. 40% describe the pain as severe. And many of these women will see their unborn, their child that they have chosen to abort. So the 
emotional ramifications of that we can't even measure. But many times it does not expel all of the pregnancy tissue. And so that dead tissue can sit there. It can increase a woman's risk of infection. In fact, um, the FDA has a black box warning on mifepristone. This is their strongest warning they can give on a drug because they know that on rare occasions it can be associated with an atypical infection um, called Clostridium sordelli that can quickly kill a woman. We know that that tissue that's in the woman's uterus will cause her to continue to cramp and bleed. And um, many times um, the these women do require an emergency room visit, um, very high quality study looking at the 17 states where Medicaid fa- um, uh, will fund an elective abortion, demonstrate that one out of 20 women will present with an abortion-related complication within a month. Um, additionally, very high-quality studies out of um, Scandinavian countries that are able to link all of the abortions to all the subsequent events that occur um, tell us that even when used according to the FDA's early protocol, about 6% of these women will require surgery 15% will have a clinical hemorrhage, and about 2% will have a significant infection. So, you know, women are, are not being told any of this. In the United States, we do a very, very poor job of collecting data regarding complications. Um, and as, as Eric just mentioned, um, for the past seven years, the FDA has said it doesn't want to know about any complications unless it kills the woman. So that's the state that we're in. And then, of course, with all these loosening of the regulations that Eric just mentioned, um, providing it without ultrasound so that women perhaps use it further in the pregnancy um, where it's much less effective. Um, Studies tell us that almost four out of 10 women who use these pills in the second trimester will require surgery. Um, Failure to rule out an ectopic pregnancy means that some women are going to be at risk for a threat to their life, um, and they may die um, because these are very, very dangerous. Um, not obtaining labs so that um, we can identify women who are severely anemic who shouldn't bleed heavily for two weeks, um, identify women who need um, a Rogam injection to prevent future pregnancy complications. Um, all of those things are not being done now, and in fact, we don't even know who's ordering the pills. Women can order them from websites, or it may not even be a woman. It may be a sex trafficker, incestuous abuser, coercive boyfriend. Um, but all of those things are happening because of the FDA's extremely lax regulation of these drugs. Absolutely. You know, Ingrid, I think you and I are, are both in, a, in strong agreement that this, you know, regardless of where someone stands on the issue of abortion, the way these drugs are being marketed and dispensed to women really represents frank medical malpractice. And, you know, women are not, as you said, being told of the real risks that uh, that are there with these drugs, especially when they're taken without medical supervision. And, you know, you touched on the increased risk of infection with a specific type of bacteria, Clostridium sordelli. And I, I think, you know, the more I've talked about this, the more important I think it is for us to highlight this risk of infection with that bacteria in particular, because as you said, it causes an atypical sepsis picture, which is part of what led to that black box warning from the FDA on this drug. And and Ingrid, I don't know if you heard about, there was a woman 
unfortunately, a, a young woman in the state of Nevada recently that passed away uh, just a few days after being given mifepristone and mesoprostol for an induced abortion by a Planned Parenthood in Nevada. And do you know about that case? Yes, I've heard about that. It's tragic and I, I believe there was a similar case out of Canada last year. Absolutely, absolutely. And I don't I don't know about you. I mean obviously neither one of us have reviewed this woman's medical chart. So, you know, we don't know what her exact cause of death was certainly, but it we know it was from an infection from the news reports and you know, from what the news reported it sounds like she presented with pretty mild symptoms, what people might consider normal after a chemical abortion initially, and then uh, was sent home, it sounds like, and then came back the next day and ultimately, within just a few hours, ended up in renal failure and respiratory failure. And, uh, you know, for me, reading it and knowing sort of the insidious uh, nature of sepsis from clostridium, I would bet that that's probably what she died from, just, you know, just from reading the minimal um, information that we have. And, you know, again, can't be certain on that. But, you know, it, does, it certainly does highlight the, the importance of physicians, especially. So for any physicians or other medical professionals that are listening to this podcast, the importance actually of us knowing what actually happened with those patients that we're seeing in the emergency room. And, and I think really highlights the egregious nature of, as Eric said, people dispensing these pills and not being the ones to manage the complications. Because then, Ingrid, you and I show up in the emergency room taking care of a patient, really starting from, starting handicapped because we don't know exactly what happened with this patient. We don't know exactly what drugs she took. And she may tell us whether it be because she's ashamed of the choice that she made or because she was instructed to do so, that she's having a miscarriage. And, you know, that same study that you quoted that looked at emergency room visits showed that women whose post-abortion complications were miscoded as miscarriage complications actually had a higher rate of hospitalization, you know, which, so that just speaks to how important it is for us as doctors to know what's going on with our patients you know, Ingrid, I, I know that you've seen many of these complications in your emergency room. Can you explain um, to our listeners what are some of the physical impacts on women that you've seen in your emergency room, especially since the FDA uh, removed those basic safeguards and, and especially, you know, since 2021 when they became available online and through the mail? Yeah, thank you for asking, Christina. It, it is true that I am seeing more complications I'm in Texas, and we've had significant abortion limitations for over two years, and yet I'm seeing more complications. And the reason is that women are leaving the state. Um, some of these women have told me they were not even offered a surgical abortion, which statistics show there are four times as many complications after a chemical abortion compared to surgical abortion, but they're not even offering them that. They're giving them these pills in California, Colorado. These women are traveling back to Texas, and they're suffering without anyone to help them. And in fact, um, it, it highlights the need for doctors to understand this because one of these women that I cared for, she was seen in the emergency room by an emergency room physician a few days before I saw her. That doctor sent her home because her pregnancy test was negative. Mm -hmm. She had dead tissue in her uterus, but the tissue was no longer functioning, and so it was no longer causing a positive pregnancy test. And yet she bled for two months, every day for two months, and needed surgery. So, so because, unfortunately, many American medical societies 
want to protect access to abortion. They're downplaying the risk. No one is telling the emergency room doctors what to look for. And I think that's what happened with my patient and probably, like you say, what happened with the young woman in Nevada, that the doctors didn't know that this could be quite serious. Um, And so one of the things that is so sad to me is these women do not want to talk about these complications, even though they're frequent. Many of these women have told me, Dr. Scop, I think this is what I deserved for making the decision I did. So they're suffering silently, but they are suffering. And um, if we care for women, we should we should not want this to be happening to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Gosh, that just breaks my heart. You know, on top of the the mental health toll that we know just the abortion in and of itself takes on women that now this is being heaped on them as well. And, you know, I think a lot of this, the the fact that we care so deeply for our patients and we care so much that that they have been lied to, even by our FDA, is is definitely part of what, you know, spurred this this lawsuit and um, and spurred many people to start speaking out. So, um, back going back to the lawsuit, Eric, can you catch people up on what's been happening in this lawsuit since you were last with us in May? There's been you've been busy with the lawsuit, so can you catch us up on sort of where we're at as of as of today? Yeah, there's never been a dull moment in this case. So again, we filed the lawsuit last year. Um, the district court ruled in our favor. Essentially, we asked for early relief pending this litigation. Uh, so we're going to still have a final ruling, but just waiting while we fully fledge, you know, argue these case, these issues and get the facts out from the FDA, can we get some type of preliminary relief? And the district court granted all the preliminary relief from the 2000 approval to the 2021 mail order abortions. The Fifth Circuit in May heard oral argument, and then on August 16th, it issued its decision. And essentially, it said the 2016 major changes to the regimen and then the 2020, 2021 approval of mail order abortions were illegal and also timely challenged. It questioned whether we had or clients had timely challenged the 2000 approval and whether we had something called legal standing to challenge the 2019 generic approval. We, we disagree, respectfully disagree with that decision, but ultimately these are meaningful victories at this preliminary stage from the Fifth Circuit to bring back the original regimen, which had all those safeguards, brought, brings back the doctor, limits the gestation, permissible gestational age back down to seven weeks, where again, the, the, I understand that the complications between seven and 10 weeks goes up exponentially, even after 10 weeks. So it's important to bring down that gestational age limit as well. So we got meaningful victories on those common sense safeguards from the Fifth Circuit. Of course, the FDA doesn't want that victory from us. So they went to the Supreme Court in September asking the Supreme Court to review the Fifth Circuit's decision. And so right now we're in the middle of briefing with the Supreme Court uh, saying, no, Your Honors, uh, the the Fifth Circuit decision is sound, it's just, and frankly, it saves uh, women's health and lives in, in the process. And that's the most important thing about this. Uh, we, we don't know when the Supreme Court will f- review and decide this, but again, all that's being asked now is, will you take up this case? It's, it, whatever comes next from the Supreme Court won't be the final say, per se. They could say, no, we don't want to take it right now or ever, and then it goes back to the district court, or they could say, yes, we want to look at the merits of this, this challenge and the, what the Fifth Circuit did or didn't do. Um, and then they will do a full set of new briefs again and then have an, another round of oral argument and a decision. That could be anywhere from a year now or two years from now. So uh, we And we can't, because what happened in April after our first victory was the Supreme Court put the pause button on our victories until it makes such a decision. So we don't see the, we don't, we can't realize the gains of our victories from the Fifth Circuit until it denies 
uh, the review requested by the FDA. So we, we're hoping the FDA or the Supreme Court tells the FDA, no, we don't need to review this right now. Um, and then that's when we get the restoration of those previous safeguards. Awesome. Thank you for that explanation. It's been, um, as we said on the last podcast, even for those of us involved in the lawsuit, sometimes it, uh, when you're not in the legal world all the time, it gets a little bit hard to follow things. So it's always great to have Eric to explain where we're at. And so we're, we're waiting on a Supreme Court decision uh, right now. And with that, I'm going to end this first half of this conversation. I look forward to having our listeners join us for part two, where we will discuss the future of AHMBFDA a little bit more and uh, and also the future of chemical abortion. You know, it's clear in this post-real world that there is still a lot to do to change hearts and minds on abortion and to educate our next generation of medicine on the harms of induced abortion, as well as promoting the practice of life-affirming medicine. APLUG is uniquely positioned to do just that, but we cannot accomplish this without the support of our members and donors. So if you would like to partner with us to ensure that life-affirming medicine and excellent health care for women and children continues to be available, please consider APLUG in your year-end giving. You can make a tax-deductible donation by going to aaplog.org donate. If you liked this episode, don't forget to give us a five-star review on whatever podcast app you're using to listen. If you have any topic requests, feel free to message us on social media or via email at info at We'll see you next week. <laughs>